Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend, Dr. Michael New. Now, some of you may recognize him because he's a fairly prominent academic in the pro-life movement, and he's been on this show to share his insights before, just to give you a bit of an idea of his background. Uh, he's currently a research associate of political science and social research at the Catholic University of America. He's been an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lose Institute for quite some time. And he's also a fellow with the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. He's got a Ph.D. in political science and a master's degree in statistics from Stanford University. And he has served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard MIT Data Center and as a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts. His articles have appeared in various peer-reviewed journals, four of which have examined the impact of state-level abortion legislation. A lot of what he does has been used actually to make the case for pro-life laws across the United States. So his impact is really an incalculable in some ways because there are very few academics in the pro-life field who are examining data and who are presenting an alternative narrative to the mainstream media. Because what we see and what we've seen just in the last couple of weeks is the mainstream media will pick up on some polling from Gallup or what have you, and they'll twist the data to make the assertion that the pro-life movement is losing, the abortion movement is winning, and because there aren't any academics from the pro-life side examining the same data and pointing out uh, what the real story actually is, uh, quite often that narrative has some legs. And so Dr. Michael New is basically the pro-life movement's academic firefighter, and then he constantly responds to all of these uh, to different news stories coming out predicting the demise of the pro-life movement and the pro-life worldview. What I wanted to talk about with him today, in addition to a roundup of corrections to mainstream media coverage of the pro-life movement, is the fact that he was a speaker and participant in a recent men's march in Washington, D.C., a march made up completely of men opposing abortion, which... I think it's a really neat idea, especially because the idea that men should be involved in the pro-life movement is something I've been talking about for quite a long time, but it's something that protesters frequently bring up, abortion activists frequently bring up. If you have a uterus, you can't have an opinion, things like that. Facts don't have penises, but these things don't really seem to make much of a difference uh, to our opponents in the abortion movement. And I've actually given quite a few talks on, on this specific subject. In fact, I gave a, a talk on why men should be involved in the pro-life movement uh, in Vienna after the March for Life in Austria a couple of years ago, uh, because I really do think that men have a duty and a responsibility to stand up for the weak and vulnerable, and that what the pro-life movement needs is more men, not fewer men. And so with that, I have one of my favorite pro-life men coming on the podcast to share his insights with us. And this is my conversation with Dr. Mike. Michael New. Well, Michael, uh, great to have you back on the podcast. And before we get into the, the main subject of our discussion today, letting all the listeners know about a March for Life that was exclusively made up of men, I want to get your uh, statistical insight on a few things that have been going on that you've been writing for National Review Online uh, that you uh, you spoke with me about uh, for a column here at LifeSite News. What is going on with Joe Biden's abortion budget? What's the good news and the bad news for pro-lifers in that, just to start off? Uh, I wish I had 
had some good news, but I don't. Uh, the news for pro-lifers is pretty bad. Uh, I'll be honest, as far from a pro-life perspective, uh, this is probably the worst budget that I have ever seen in my adult life. Uh, just running through some of the lowlights, uh, this budget calls for the repeal of the Dornan Amendment. Uh, that would make it possible for the uh, Medicaid program in Washington, D.C. Uh, to fund uh, elective abortions uh, calls for a 17% increase in Title 10 family planning funding. Effectively, that is a slush fund uh, for uh, abortion facilities. Uh, President Biden, uh, or no, I should say President Trump, rather, did something very good. Uh, uh, he made it you know, impossible for uh, Planned Parenthood uh, to obtain Title 10 funding. Uh, but President Biden is working to restore their eligibility, and the Title 10 program is going to get a nice budget increase if uh, Biden's proposal comes to law. Uh, it calls for a 72% increase in the United Nations uh, Family Planning Fund. Again, they support abortion. They even support the coercive uh, population control policies in China, including forced abortion. And um, the one thing that should definitely be on the radar screen of every pro-lifer is this budget calls for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, this is the first budget in 28 years uh, that calls for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. And if your listeners are not familiar with the Hyde Amendment, uh, the Hyde Amendment limits the ability of the federal government to fund abortions uh, through the Medicaid program. You know, so uh, Medicaid is a government program provides health insurance to uh, low-income earners. Um, and ever since uh, the Hyde Amendment was passed in 1976, it was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1980. Uh, by and large, the federal government uh, is kind of out of the business of funding elective abortions uh, through Medicaid. So it's the position of Joe Biden uh, that abortion should only be legal, but it should be paid for with everyone's taxpayer dollars. And we know from a lot of research that the Hyde Amendment saves lives, that when abortions are free or very heavily subsidized, abortion rates go up. And uh, again, there's a very strong body of evidence suggesting that if you repeal the Hyde Amendment, the abortion rate will go up. Uh, Sarah for Reproductive Rights did a study back in 2010. They found that the Hyde Amendment had stopped over a million abortions. My Lotion Suit study, which I first authored in 2016 and revised 2020, has found the Hyde Amendment has saved over 2.4 million abortions and continues to save 60,000 lives every year. So pro-lifers really have our work cut off for us as far as preserving the, the Hyde Amendment. Uh, if you want some good news, uh, the good news is this is just a proposal. Um, you know, the president's budget really is no legal weight, but it really does show some insight what President Biden's uh, priorities are. So that's one thing. And that the battle over the Hyde Amendment is, is winnable. Uh, you know, mar Democratic margins of both the House and Senate are very slim. If we can just get a few Democrats to flip, we can save the Hyde Amendment. Republicans can also filibuster and try to block you know, an appropriations bill that does not include Hyde. So it's not over, but pro-lifers certainly have our work cut out for us this, this year. One thing I'd like your take on is like, look, I'm 32 and I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Hyde Amendment not being particularly controversial, even with Democratic presidents, right? Even Barack Obama, who was at the time of his inauguration, the most pro-abortion uh, politician ever to be sworn in to the highest office in the United States, uh, included the Hyde Amendment in his budgets without a whole lot of fanfare. Joe Biden was generally considered to be a moderate. And even actually when, when Barack Obama selected him as his running mate, ironically, Biden was considered to be a moderate Democrat that sort of took the edge off some of Obama's uh, more left-wing progressive tendencies. So 
How is it that, that Joe Biden is the one who's who's uh, spearheading most of what the uh, the abortion industry wants in, in his budget and in other policies? I mean, you are right. This is unprecedented, even for Democratic presidents. Seven of the eight budgets proposed by President Clinton include the Hyde Amendment. All eight budgets proposed by President Obama include the Hyde Amendment. So this is a real departure from precedent. Uh, what happened, uh, I think what you see happening is, you know, if you look at Joe Biden's kind of career trajectory uh, and you look at kind of what he's done on abortion and sanctity of life issues, uh, he's kind of followed, you know, mainstream opinion in the Democratic Party. Uh, that for much of his career, uh, he thought abortion should be legal, uh, but not paid for with taxpayer dollars. In fact, 1994, he wrote to a constituent and bragged that on no fewer than 50 occasions did he vote, did he vote against taxpayer funding for abortion. So that was a typical position for you know a lot of Democrats in the you know 80s, 90s, and 2000s to uh, support legal abortion, but at least oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. Uh, what's happened? is that the Democratic Party really has shifted to the left uh, on these issues. Uh, that if you kind of look at the demographics of the Democratic Party, uh, they used to get a lot of votes uh, from a lot of you know, older Catholics who came of age uh, during the Great Depression or World War II. And these Catholic voters uh, tended to be somewhat you know, liberal on economic issues. They supported unions. They supported Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. You know, but they were you know, socially conservative. So, you know, Democratic politicians realized that was part of their base and supporting or I should say opposing taxpayer funding of abortion was a good way to kind of reach out to these voters. Uh, that demographic block is diminished. Uh, if somebody was, say, 10 when the Great Depression happened, there are over 100 now if they're still alive. So a group of older, more conservative Democrats has passed away. They were replaced by a Younger group of Democrats, it's a lot more secular, a lot more liberal, especially on social issues. And as a result, uh, there's a lot of pressure from these younger liberal activists uh, to do away with the Hyde Amendment. And Joe Biden is responding to that. One more thing before we get to the march, just because you've been doing a lot of number crunching lately, and it's been extremely helpful for the pro-life movement to be able to read your work on this, is a lot of headlines right across the mainstream media over the last couple of weeks has been about this new data set uh, from Gallup polling claiming that an unprecedented number of Americans are actually supportive of the abortion agenda. And one has to surmise that the reason this polling is coming now is because it supports uh, Joe Biden in his radically pro-abortion agenda. But you've written a few pieces saying not so fast. Uh, you've written a piece for live action. You've written a piece for for. Uh, National Review Online saying that this polling data is just actually more of the same. And uh, while it indicates to pro-lifers that there's a lot of work to be done on the educational front, at the same time, it really isn't the doom and gloom that abortion activists are saying it is. So maybe kind of catch our listeners up on why this new polling data doesn't indicate a sea change in public opinion. Sure. You know, Gallup typically does a poll on abortion uh, once a year, and they tend to release the results sometime in June. And they ask a pretty wide range of questions about what people think about abortion and sanctity of life issues. The one question that's getting a lot of attention is they ask whether or not abortion is morally acceptable. And they did find a little bit of an increase in the percentage of people who thought abortion was morally acceptable. This poll found that 47% of Americans uh, view abortion as morally acceptable. Uh, that's an all-time high. And a lot of people in the mainstream media are publicizing that finding pretty aggressively. But when you look at you know, all the questions they ask, you really see a lot of stability 
in attitudes towards sanctity of life issues. For instance, Gallup always asks the pro-life, pro-choice question. Uh, this time they found that 47% of Americans identify as pro-life, 48% of Americans identify as pro-choice. If you look at the results of the uh, five Gallup polls uh, prior to this one, uh, average pro-life sentiment was 47%. So we were right the average. So that indicates, I think there's a lot of stability on sanctity of life issues in terms of attitudes, at least, uh, towards the sanctity of life issues. Uh, the poll also found that 52% of Americans think that abortion either be always illegal or illegal in most circumstances. So that's a majority. Uh, so that's broadly consistent with you know prior Gallup polling. So that's again more evidence of, of stability. Uh, the one thing I'd also add is that I think it was just you know unfortunate that Gallup conducted this poll uh, before President Biden uh, released his budget. Uh, that we, there's a good body of research showing that taxpayer funding of abortion tends to pull very poorly. And if you know the poll had come out after you know, his budget got some attention, especially after the fact that he released a budget that did not include the Hyde Amendment, uh, I think pro-life sentiment might have been even higher than it was. So by and large, I think you just see a lot of stability in sanctity of life issues, according to uh, this Gallup poll. What do you think the term pro-life means in the, in the polling context? Because there's a book that came out a, a couple of years by Zayed Munson, which you probably read called Abortion Politics, in which he makes the case that People now refer to themselves as pro-life more as an indicator of where their political allegiance lies rather than specifically what their view on abortion is. What's your take on, on how useful the data we're getting from, from people like Gallup is? That, that's a very good question. I mean, um, one thing is we have seen more people are willing to identify as pro-life, that back in 1995, only 33% of people identified as pro-life according to a Gallup survey. In 1996, only 37% identified as pro-life according to Gallup. Now pro-life tends to pull in the uh, high 40s. Um, it's kind of hard to really kind of parse out uh, you know, what, what that means exactly. I mean, I do think that there have been some shifts in sentiment, uh, but I also do think that people view the term pro-life you know, a bit differently than they did 25 years ago. You know, I think at one point people kind of associate the pro-life movement with things like Operation Rescue and clinic blockades uh, whereas I think that's largely receded from uh, public conscience today. You know, I think now people identify the pro-life movement with things like ultrasounds. So, um, again, I do think that, um, you know, the fact that some people identify as pro-life might mean they just dislike abortion or, or don't approve of abortion, but not necessarily believe that abortion should be, you know, illegal. Um, again, it's kind of hard to really, you know, figure out what, what people think exactly from some of these polls. But again, I do think the fact that people are more comfortable with the term pro-life it is a good development. You know, I think that uh, identifying as pro-life uh, just seems a lot more common and a lot more mainstream today uh, than it was, say, 25 years ago. Now, on to the, the march. Maybe a layout for our listeners what this uh, march made up exclusively of men uh, to combat abortion was. Because as a, as a full-time pro-life activist um, who, is a, who is a man, we get a, a lot of of feedback, shall we say, from people on the streets telling us that if you don't have a uterus and you don't you don't have an opinion. I've actually given a lot of talks in three countries on why men should be involved in the pro-life movement and why I think men especially actually should be involved in the pro-life movement. But maybe I explain to our listeners what the genesis of that, this idea was, what the event was all about. Sure, that the idea came from uh, Jim Havens, who is a pro-life activist uh, in Florida, and Father Stephen Imbarato, uh, who runs uh, Life Ministries U.S. And 
they had the idea to get together and organize a pro-life men's march in Washington, D.C. Uh, they did this on relatively short notice and with a minimal budget. Uh, they had some very good speakers. They had Monsignor Pope, who's a priest here in the Washington, D.C. area. They had Walter Hoy, who does great pro-life work out in Oakland, California. Uh, they had, uh, I was very honored. They had me speak. Uh, they had uh, one time presidential candidate Alan Keyes spoke. So on relatively short notice, they assembled a good group of speakers. And, uh, you know, the, what they argued reasonably was that, you know, whenever there's an abortion, there's always a man connected in some way to that abortion. And they really wanted men to step up and to stop being part of the problem and instead be part of the solution. So, you know, the purpose of the march were, you know, kind of twofold. We wanted to first just really raise awareness of sanctity of life issues. We wanted to also expose the pro-abortion policies of President Biden. And uh, again, our goal is to start a national men's movement uh, to end abortion. So again, we had uh, our event on Saturday. Uh, it attracted hundreds of people on you know relatively short notice. Uh, again, everybody was wearing shirts and ties. Uh, I think that added the sense of dignity and class, professionals of the event. I think that uh, their next thing they're going to do is organize a gathering uh, when the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has their General Assembly in Baltimore uh, in mid-November. Uh, but again, I think they're going to plan to do uh, similar kinds of events in the future and really encourage men to step up their efforts in building a culture of life. What was the uh, the atmosphere of this event? You said you said shirts and ties. I've obviously been to, to the March for Life many times. So have you. Uh, what was sort of the difference in atmosphere between this this march of, of men against abortion versus the, the the atmosphere at a general march to life in say you know D.C. or Ottawa or anywhere else? You know, I think that uh, this was a lot more solemn. You know that uh, you know we had a, we first gathered in front of an abortion facility here in the D.C. area. Uh, we heard a testimony from a speaker who um, you know regretted uh, an abortion that you know, he had been involved with. And that was you know, very powerful and very moving. And what we decided to do uh, as we walked uh, to uh, the rally point was just to remain silent. You know, there's thoughts about, you know, doing a prayer or a chant or a song. We just decided that silence was the right approach. So we had a very you know, calm, dignified way, you know, walked uh, from the abortion facility uh, several blocks to the site of our rally. And again, it was uh, prayerful. It was solemn. It was silent. And I think it was very powerful. It's interesting you say that because some of the European marches have, have been silent marches, and I've actually found them far more powerful uh, than the events where there's a lot of chanting and balloons and things like that, which is not at all to, to, to negate the the power and the atmosphere of those marches. But when I was in the at the March for Life, in the Netherlands, in The Hague a few years back, there was 15,000 people there and they all marched very silently. And it did just give a solemnity to an event that was not only committing to fight the ongoing killing of preborn children, but wasn't also in many ways a sort of a remembrance day for the many children who'd been killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then again, I think that, uh, you know, I think there's different approaches. There's not any one approach that's right or wrong, but I just like the fact that it was very quiet, uh, that again, we, we were in front of an abortion facility. I don't know if abortions were happening that day or not, but it was at the Sant'Angelo facility, which does late-term abortions. Uh, and again, I just thought that uh, the fact that men were wearing, uh, you know, shirts and ties, uh, that we had some young people there, there's a nice picture that's going viral of a father and a son uh, dressed up a shirt and tie. Uh, we're both holding rosaries. Uh, again, I really thought it added a sense of class professionalism to, to this event. 
maybe give uh it's kind of interesting because your your career is in the pro-life movement is, is always interesting to me because not only are you you an academic um who has actually been educated at some of america's finest ivy league universities if somebody could still say such a thing um and you've you know you've done peer-reviewed studies on abortion it's why you're one of the the leading experts on on abortion data in the united states for the pro-life movement but you also are regularly out in front of abortion facilities, you know, kind of pleading for the lives of the preborn, reaching out to people, offering them help. I regularly see you posting pictures on on Facebook saying I'm out in front of an abortion clinic right now um, with with some pro-life friends. Uh, please pray for what we're doing here. How did you end up in, in the pro-life movement? And how is it that you're both an academic and you're a frontline clinic activist because we, I know quite a few pro-life academics and I know tons of, of, of frontline abortion activists, but I know, or pro-life activists, pardon me, but almost none that do both of those things. That's a very good question. I mean, I can kind of answer that a couple of different ways. Uh, how did I get interested in the pro-life issue? Uh, I always say that God kind of reached out and grabbed me, you know, that uh, cradle Catholic, uh, went to Catholic grade school, went to a Catholic high school, Abortion was really not on the radar screen for me growing up. You know, it was like a lot of other high school students scrambling around, involved in different activities, trying to make good grades. I do remember 11th grade, I did see the silent scream, you know, the famous uh, documentary where Dr. Bernard Nathanson shows an ultrasound of a child being aborted. And I remember being kind of disgusted by it, but, you know, I didn't run to the barricade and, you know, start doing pro-life work. And then for undergrad, I went to Dartmouth College and my freshman year, I uh, wasn't all that happy there. Uh, but the one thing I enjoyed was my involvement in some conservative political groups. And I think that started steering me down a more pro-life path. And at some point during my freshman year, I probably would have felt, I probably would have felt comfortable uh, identifying myself as pro-life. And then uh, you know, one day, sophomore year, I was sitting at mass. And I don't remember what happened. I don't know what the priest was talking about during the homily, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That the life issue is really important. It's not like term limits. It's not like kind of the capital gains tax. You know, this is a real life and death issue. And Michael, you should be doing something. Uh, being a student, didn't know quite what to do. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll start a group. So I approached my priest and I said, I'm interested in starting a pro-life group. And he told me there's a student already working on it. Why don't you work with him? So I emailed the student and we met and collaborated and helped uh, get a group off the ground. So that was kind of my, my start. And I was active in pro-life groups, both as an undergrad at Dartmouth and as a graduate student at Stanford. Uh, now, how did I get to kind of street-level activism? Um, you know, essentially, I was uh, reading the book, um, I think, uh, you know, called uh, Wrath of Angels. And um, basically, it gives the history of kind of street-level pro-life activism. Yes, by James, um, by James Risen. Yep. And it kind of even dates back before Operation Rescue that, you know, uh, in like St. Louis in the 70s, uh, that was, you know, really where a lot of the street level activism really got to start. And there were, you know, big clinic blockades and a lot of people participated in. Uh, and for a while, they were really, you know, stopping a lot of abortions in St. Louis, you know, that almost everybody was Catholic. The police didn't want to arrest anybody. Uh, the judges didn't want to sentence anybody. So street-level activism had a real difference in Missouri in the 70s and uh, continues to do so to, to this day. And just reading this book, just kind of, you know, a light bulb kind of went on that, you know, the writing and research that, you know, I do is, is, is great, uh, but I just felt really called to be, you know, involved in a more uh, tangible way. And, uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I wasn't really, you know, trained as a sidewalk counselor. I was at this time a junior faculty member at the University of Alabama. And, you know, to be honest, I was a little bit worried. I was like, what if I go to the abortion facility and I run to a student of mine? I run to a colleague. 
you know, I'm not tenured here. And, uh, you know, if they file a complaint against me, you know, there could be some repercussions. But one thing I've learned is that if, you know, God's calling you to do something, you know, he'll take care of things. And you should just follow his call. So I do remember, um, you know, I guess I was spent a summer in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was, I think, 2007. I went to a sidewalk counseling training session. Uh, I ran to somebody there who was uh, kind of a teenager who was going to this abortion facility in Falls Church uh, all by himself. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't be out there by yourself. If nothing else, I'm going to join you. Just keep an eye on things. And I was nervous the first time, but I went out there and, you know, this guy wasn't falling. And, you know, uh, you know, we didn't you know, necessarily have a lot of interactions with people, but we were a good prayerful presence. And, you know, eventually I just became more and more comfortable with uh, being a presence in front of these abortion facilities. And uh, again, I moved to Washington, D.C., uh, August of 2018. And, uh, you know, about a month after I moved in, you know, I took a trip to the Planned Parenthood on Saturday and I thought we'd have a really big contention of people there. I know when I spent summers in D.C., we'd have 20 or 30 people praying outside the Planned Parenthood. And I was surprised to see only two pro-life people there. And, uh, you know, some people moved away. You know, the abortion clinic moved to a new location that some people didn't like. Uh, just for a lot of circumstantial reasons, uh, our presence was diminished. And I just thought, you know, we need to get this built back up again. You know, I need to be out here. On Saturdays, you know, I'll run a 40 days for life campaign. I'll email my friends and go to social media. And, you know, the world hasn't necessarily banged down my door eager to help. We have gotten more people out there. We have assembled a good team that does go out there to pray on a consistent basis. And, you know, we are reaching out to women and we are making a positive impact. So, you know, that's kind of my story. Maybe uh, for those listeners who have never been outside an abortion clinic, give us an idea of, of what it's like. So you usually go out Saturday mornings, from what I can see. Um, what does your day look like? You head out to the clinic, and then what? What happens? Uh, typically, you know, I head out to the clinic. Uh, you know, we usually try to get there early if we can. That uh, you know, typically they start appointments early. Uh, I usually like to bring uh, some signs. I have one sign that has a, a hotline for a pregnancy help center. Uh, we have another sign that you know, indicates if you're injured in abortion, we give people a number to call. Uh, you know, I typically try to plan things out in advance. I have pamphlets that I carry with me. I have one you know, general pamphlet about you know, field development. I have another that offers lists of local resources. I have another kind of handbill I give out that offers help about uh, abortion pill reversal that sometimes women take the abortion pill, but when it reversed and I have information about that. And I also have a Spanish language brochure in case uh, I do encounter somebody who speaks Spanish. So, um, you know, we typically show up uh, very often. There are clinic escorts who, you know, try to thwart us uh, and do try to intercept the women before we get to them. And we just do our best to uh, maintain a presence out there. Uh, there are some people who go and just provide prayer support. And that's very valuable. We just try to keep an eye out for people who we think might be entering the clinic. You know, we try to approach them in a kind, compassionate, loving way and, you know, offer them some alternatives and, uh, you know, see what we can't do to engage them a bit. You know, I'll be honest, our batting average is not great. You know, a lot of people simply ignore us. But I would say about 20, 25 percent of the time, somebody will take a pamphlet or a flyer off us. And I think anybody who's been out there for any extended amount of time can at least think of one situation uh, usually more than one, uh, or an abortion didn't happen because of their presence. Some people show up with misgivings. Uh, and they see somebody out there and take it as a sign that they shouldn't go through with the abortion. Sometimes we do run into uh, a friend or a boyfriend or a parent who doesn't want the abortion to take place. And if they hear about pregnancy help and other resources, you know, that gives them some leverage to uh, talk to the abortion-minded woman. So again, uh, you know, it's uh, 
different. Every no day is quite the same out there. You know, uh, we're not frankly terribly popular. Uh, that it's a very frankly liberal liberal part of the city. You know, people do come by and make snarky comments, and you know, we just try to be prayerful and calm, and you know, we offer prayers to everybody who's who's mean to us. Uh, but uh, you know, again, every day is different out there. Uh, some days are busier than others. Uh, during the pandemic, we've not seen quite as much foot traffic. You know, we strongly suspect they're kind of spreading their appointments out. So we have not seen quite as many women go to the clinic as uh, we're accustomed to. Uh, but I think that should give some indication of what a typical day might might look like. My final question then would be, uh, as, as a participant and a speaker at the, the Men's March Against Abortion, and as a, as a male pro-life activist who's been working in both academic circles and on the streets now for years, uh, I guess we'll, we'll close off the podcast uh, by asking you to address men directly. What do you think that men should be doing uh, to fight abortion, and why do you think that they should be doing it? I think that you know, men should kind of follow their their calling. There's many good ways to build a culture of life. You know, people obviously have to take a look at uh, you know their skill set. Uh, some people are called to give financially. Uh, some people are called to uh, run for office. Uh, but the one thing I would encourage everyone to do on this that's listening is consider spending some time out in front of an abortion facility. I think there's you know no better way uh, to build a culture of life than to be a prayerful presence where the abortions are actually happening. So uh, again, uh, I typically think that women are often better at engaging other women than men are, but very often men are able to have good conversations with other men. And uh, I've had good conversations with uh, men outside of abortion facilities. So, uh, you know, God uses everybody who shows up. And uh, as a man, uh, you know, you're called to uh, live a Christian life. Uh, you're called to help build a culture of life. And again, consider being a presence outside of these abortion facilities. Again, as I said before, there's no better way to build a culture of life than to be a prayerful presence, you know, where these abortions are taking place. Michael, thank you so much for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life academic Dr. Michael New. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. We do hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to hear other insightful conversations like it, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find past shows on similar subjects there. Or you can subscribe to ensure that you get the latest updates to our show. We're on any podcast catcher that you can find. We're on YouTube. And we do really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. And we hope you'll join us again next week.